This talk was given by Michelle Sege-Spark at Zen Mountain Monastery. Sege is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everybody. This is from Cultivating the Empty Field by Hang Ji, 12th century Zen master, China. It's called The Conduct of the Moon and Clouds. The consistent conduct of people of the way is like flowing clouds and full moon reflecting everywhere, glistening within each of the 10,000 forms. Dignified and upright, emerge and make contact. Language cannot transmit this. Speculation cannot reach it. Leaping beyond the infinite and cutting off the dependent, this marvel cannot be measured with consciousness or emotion. Leaving causes and conditions, genuinely realize that from the outset, that the mind that embraces all the ten directions does not stop at anywhere. This collection of Cultivating the Empty Field are uh, taste shows, I would say, by Hang Chi, who was a 12th century Zen master, on ways to practice that go beyond words. And he's pointing out instructions, really, to cut off unnecessary thoughts, to let go of strong emotions, and leave behind views that include our past. That is, of course, after we do some work to get into that situation. The mind that does that doesn't rest anywhere. Now, it's nice to hear these words. They're very encouraging, but if you're sitting there with yourself, you have some work to do, perhaps, to get, get there. And it's interesting because Hang Ji also collected koans, and that's another method for breaking through our habituated self-views. His collection is called The Book of Serenity, and he was quite a poetic person. Uh, His words are inspiring. Unlike some of the words that we hear in Zen that are more like abrupt and shocking. But the context of this talk might have been interesting. It was 12th century China. Things were really being shook up then. And it wasn't just monastics, perhaps, in the Sangha, or congregation, it may have been lay men and lay women and nuns. And I imagine there was a Sangha member there that actually is in our female ancestor lineage. It may have been Mi Dao, who was a student of Dawi at the time. They coincided time-wise, so I'm using her as a Sangha member that's responding to and hearing these words. 
Now, it's interesting because when I first heard this passage years ago, I loved it. And it was along the lines of hearing lots of things that were mostly spoken by men. There was no female lineage that we knew of at that time. And there was no female modeling. We didn't have female teachers then. So I decided to pluck Mi Dao out of the air because she was a student of Dawi, and Hang Ji and Dawi were Dharma relatives. So I know that it's possible she could have heard this, and that excites me because it brings alive something about this. I want to say something about her. Midao is in our list of 58 female ancestors. She's number 30, which means there are many women that went before, and we know that to be true. Uh, And at age 35, she uh, had her awakening with Dawi, which is not young in China at that time. And another reason I picked her is because of a little bit of a bio, maybe it's a poetic bio, that I found in Women of the Way, which is a book by Sally Tisdale that describes um, some of the female ancestors' awakening. And there's this passage in it that I thought was responsive to this. At 15, through family connections, Quiet Mi Dao went to work in the Department of Lighting at court to light and dim lanterns in palace hallways. Filled with hundreds of people shouting commands and giving speeches, not speaking, she observed much. The more Midao heard, the less she said. She lit lamps and watched the soft darkness instantly disappear into shadows. She extinguished lamps, watching details around her vanish into black. She began feeling an oceanic silence inside. Silence that doesn't oppose speech. A sp- silence that speech couldn't in which speech could not be imagined. I feel, in a way, this is uh, a response to what Hamji is saying. Um, In terms of her later life, she asked her father to release her from family obligations. That would be obligations to either continue at court or to get married. Um, Though she was um, a privileged person, she decided to become a nun and started to wander for 20 years. So from age 15 or 20 to age 40, she wandered, uh, settling with Dawi. Now, Dawi was interesting also because... He was the uh, Dharma heir of Yang Wu, who collected the Blue Cliff Record, which is one of the Khan collections we study here. And Dawi also is interesting in his attitude about use of skillful means, words or ideas, koans or inspirations. He was so distressed by his students' confusion regarding the Blue Cliff record 
that he tried to burn every copy he could find. I kind of liked that idea. <laughs> but he, he also was very generous and taught men, women, monks, lay equally. So I was thinking about this passage about the conduct of the moon and clouds and the full moon reflecting at any, everywhere, glistening within each of the 10,000 forms. It's a very beautiful passage. And I have in my mind that Mia Dow hears this passage and she goes to sleep at night. She's a mature person at this time. And this is her words upon hearing the conduct. She's awakened at night. Um, as often middle-aged women are. I, I, I imagine that elderly, elder women of the human race woke in the, in the night to stir the fire and look after the little one and tell the teenagers to get back to bed. <laughs> but anyway... Um, So each night, she writes in her diary, awakened by the light pouring down upon my pillow, dark silence awakens me. I feel its presence, its luminosity. Let silence be the drifting clouds, like mist floating across the moon. Sensation, feeling, thoughts of today drift by in the dark air, in light of the moon. Against the darkest night, the ink brush scrawls empty of expression. Look up, the pure light emanating from the moon. This is the atmosphere of session. And in session, we have skillful particulars of time, place to create this atmosphere. It's an atmosphere of opening into the unknowing, the dark night. And this is how we inquire, encounter quiet in our zazen. It's, it's the perfect entry point to quiet, to silence, to just even to hear how noisy we are. So these things come together and they're not completely opposite. And in this open place of this open ground, these distinctions soften. Sometimes the sound or the noise or the chatter is predominant, and sometimes the quiet and the silence is deafening. And it tells, points to us the artificial distinctions we often make between inside and outside. And that's really helpful because we can feel confused about that and back away. But it's not a bad thing to recognize. So we're uncovering layers and our receptivity is coming up like the moon in the night sky. We are receiving, we are generating, and it's all 
reciprocal in a way. And because of the quiet and the safety of all the skillful particulars that we experience, we're, we're finding out about this creative expression of ourselves as just being. And these are the perfect conditions for awakening, for seeing ourselves, for seeing through some of the conditional thinking. As an art therapist in a locked ward, I often had people come to my art room who hadn't done art since they were six. They didn't ask to be there, per se. They didn't elect to do any artwork. And they were experiencing usually a crisis in their mental uh, functioning, let's say that. So they would wander in. It was my obligation to create an atmosphere of safety, a place that would be kind of a benign, pleasurable time in the midst of this crisis in a new world of introducing the pleasure and strength of art materials, the, the power of expression, and a quiet, expansive space without interruption. And whether this expression is deep or shallow, It directly expresses the person in this moment, in this new life as it is. Kind of like when we reflect back on beginner's mind. Ah, yes, I remember that. That was really true. So a new person coming in, making art, hasn't familiarized themselves, needs reassurance and maybe skill sets to enter. But an artist, a person who's been practicing for a while, who has a um, diligent uh, commitment, goes alone into the studio. And in both cases, both cases, it's wide open what to do and how to do it. And both need to discover what's important and find a way to genuinely express themselves. And this is as close as we can get to our original self. This is indeed so very close and so very dear. I was originally going to talk, we've been studying the Eightfold Path. I was originally going to talk on the third um, of the path, which is the first two are right view and right intention. because that has to do with cultivating the mind and so forth. And the next few are more about karmic action, uh, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. But I (laughs) realized that it would be weird to talk about talking in (laughs) in session, so uh, I (laughs) don't really want to talk about that. (laughs) But I did think about it. Because right speech is being in harmony with fellow beings, and it is genuine expression, and we are doing that. So even though it's not words and coming out. 
But before that, the, re, the way it ha- comes about comes through d- listening, hearing, deep listening, receptivity, and silence, and to see what is true. And this is the foundation for genuine expression or right speech. The sounds that we hear during session, it's sort of amazing how resonant these, these experiences become as we sit day after day. The, I sit near the Jigido bell, which is just an extraordinarily beautiful sound. I could just stop and listen to that for a long, long time. The meal drum that starts us and goes through our bodies, it's palpable. You can feel it. It's like a vibration. And then there's all the other sounds that we're receiving. The ambient room, uh, the, the, the sounds in the room, the, the heat sounds that come up from the heaters. And we let these sounds melt into us. And when we chant, our voices chant together, we're chanting the sutras, the truth of the Dharma. We're vow and gratitude. We're invoking the bodhisattvas and the ancestors. And while we're chanting, do I hear my voice or am I hearing other people's voice? It becomes sort of a blurry arising together. And are these my words that are coming out of my mouth? Or are they words that I've just agreed to put forth? And these are questions that through these experiences we can use to, as a metaphor for looking at our mind when things arise. How real is it? Where is this litany of self-centered obsession or whatever it is? Where does it come from? Is it something that's just automatically repeated because that's what you do? Or is it something that really needs addressed? but to hear it as being receptive to looking at it. And so in the silence we, of the quiet of session, we encounter ourselves. And we get quieter as time goes on. And we become aware of a presence that was already there that we may not have noticed because... Life is very full and active, kind of like waking up at night, having the moon literally come through the window onto your pillow, waking you up, and you look up. And everything is, is dark except for where the moon is lighting up. So subtly below these discursive thoughts of everyday activity, in the silence, we can experience this luminosity or presence. And we are alone in that. And sometimes being alone is very difficult for people. We have to accept that we are alone with our minds. Um, we have to accept we are alone with our bodies. 
and that no one can live this for us. At the same time, that we are alone with everyone we know and our life as it is, and it is very much goes from maybe one extreme to another. Maybe it does for you. Maybe it's a flow. I don't know. But I wanted to also look at this, that silence sometimes equates with being alone and the aspects of what might hinder us accepting feeling alone. So one thing might be that we're, we have, it's very painful to be alone because we feel lonely. And our loneliness is very frightening or overwhelming. We just don't want to feel that. So, And in the loneliness, we may feel alone with certain attitudes about ourselves that we, we may, you know, really not um, like ourselves or love ourselves. We may feel sorry for ourselves in a certain way than that sort of a consolatory way of trying to shore up not being alone. And these are heavy burdens. I'm not saying they're not true because they're so pervasive in some ways for some people that it takes a lot of time to look at and to disentangle. And along with fear of loneliness is um, maybe a lack of self-power, like a feeling like we have ability or we're helpless or we feel constricted. So these are aspects of loneliness. Another fear of being alone um, is being overwhelmed by strong emotion. And they can be real demons because they can be relentless And it's very, um, some people want to keep the lid on so tight that they never actually feel anything. You know, it's all machinations in their their mind. Maybe that's their style, but, you know, um, sometimes strong emotion is a good thing. It's a release. Um, Some people don't want to go there because it's too much, too much for me. I I can't deal with this myself. And underneath strong emotions sometimes, um, we, we often tend to project those out in like jealousy or envy or cut off or dullness, evasiveness, numbness. Um, those are the acting out of. But underneath that might be just true sadness, loss and disappointment. Uh, I actually encounter this kind of dynamic a lot with the inmates who write to me because they start sitting and sometimes they can see what's coming up in a big way and sometimes they can't. They just get hit a wall and they just go dead or numb or stuck. And I'm exaggerating this just for the sake of us being able to look at it. Another thing about being alone. Um, I'm going to get to the good stuff in a minute. But <laughs> uh, is the fear of not understanding and the fear of confusion. That just doesn't go with a modern adult American. We know a lot. We are competent. We're skilled. We can do things. 
And boy, if you're confused, you just don't want to know that. You don't want to know about confusion. You don't want to know about not understanding. I, I can remember first coming here and hearing Dido give a talk, and I didn't know what he was talking about. And I felt like so shame, ashamed that I couldn't get it, that I would just say, okay, it doesn't matter. I don't have to know what he's talking about. So the, there's a real barrier there about confusion. But not understanding is actually a good not such a bad place to be because you're, you're not concluding anything. It's open. Not understanding. Making a m- mistake in artwork is actually a perfect place to be because then you can just... It, hap- it just happened because you didn't intend it. Wow, this could be interesting. Anyway. And then finally, um, a hindrance of being alone is when we cling to being alone. We like that. We don't want to be intruded upon. And it's like an escape, a cocoon of safety. Um, and actually, that was sort of, I think that's kind of me. <laughs> um, and there's this yearning for this, striving for some ideal mystery. And the, some of the Zen lore kind of cultivates this um, idealization that um, I think can be difficult too. So as we're sitting in session and we're solitary, we have all these supports, of course, but we need to start to trust um, the the aloneness and the silence and allow that to be as spacious as it needs to be. So trust in in the changes that are happening, the fluctuation, the the feelings that go through you in one zazen period or the thoughts, this, this elaboration. Um, so even if you're feeling crappy one minute and happy the next, no matter what, that's, trust that. Hanchi says, leaping beyond the infinite, cutting off the dependent. This marvel cannot be measured with consciousness or emotion. So that's really interesting. Can't think about it too much. Consciousness or emotion can't be measured. Say, what is that? What is that alone when you can't measure it? If we're mutually arising in interdependent creatures, where do I kind of stop and you begin? And it's ultimately up to you what you bring into yourself, of course. Your feet are on the ground, your nose is in the sky, and you're sitting on this seat, bare bare bones. You're walking around, you're sitting down, you're having a meal, and all these other bodies are doing it. And you have no idea what's going on with anyone. It's, it's, maybe you don't even have an idea what's going on with you, and that Maybe that's not even such a bad idea. So there is a kind of safety in letting go of the self and being alone with the spaciousness. It's like when we chant the formless field of benefaction. And in these conditions, 
we have often feel gratitude or love or empathy comes up, it's naturally arising. Yuchiyama says, on, on this, um, weather of the mist of the clouds going across the moon like the night in the night sky, the essential matter is to wake up regardless of your situation. Don't look for a place where all thoughts disappear. Calmly sit amongst karmic situations without being destroyed. Like weather, conditions exist in our lives, clear or cloudy days, rainy or stormy ones. They are waves made by nature's power where we have no control. Seeing all this as the scenery of of life without being torn apart, this is stability of human life. This is the zazen we do. So again, he's pointing to the atmosphere that's cultivating this safety and this benefaction. So these are some ideas about silence that I thought might be helpful um, in appreciating silence and not having to produce thinking all the time or generating a response or anything. Just sort of being in the presence of whatever the ambience is of the atmosphere. So the first thing is we can notice our own chatter and we can notice how we're applying energy to promoting thought and that we're continuing it. We can notice how we're insisting on ourself coming up. We notice our narratives, this, then that, then this, then that. And we notice our dualistic thinking. I like, you know, this is not, oh, why did they do this? They should have done that, you know, whatever. It could be a very judgmental thing. This compared to that is what I'm trying to say about that. So that's a form of discrimination. Is it something we have to do all the time? Is it something that we have to proliferate? These are all excellent tools for functioning in the world. But they become kind of overruling of who we are, and it's not completely who we are. And in Zazen, we can allow that to relax. And the other thing about discrimination is while we're sitting there, we're pressing ourselves for insight about ourselves. I did that for a long time. Uh, (laughs) It could be mildly entertaining or distressing. But pressing yourself for an insight, is that really necessary? You don't actually have to do that. So... Going into silence means trusting all, trusting dropping all that. So dropping this discursive mind. The opposite extreme for approaching silence is what a relief. I don't have to think. I don't have to do anything. I could just sit here. But there are subtle efforts that need to be put together in your body and in your mind, your awareness. You have to be awake and restful, alert and relaxed. These are sort of complementary tensions. 
And we have to know this about ourselves. But the quiet does empower you to listen and listen in a way that you're not used to listening. And that's really wonderful. And in that listening, odd things about what's in your mind come up, at least for me. You may have fragmentary, fleeting phrases, things people said, something that happened, just a snippet here and there. I personally get a lot of visual detritus. It's actually kind of amazing looking, and I can get swept away and entranced. Sometimes it's fleeting past memories, like you hadn't thought of a person or a situation in 25 years, and boom, they're in your mind. So the silence allows for this. I think of the mind, the, the mind is kind of like this sponge that has been dipped in warm water, and it's just you know, releasing its, its expansive shape because it's absorbing all this water, and it's kind of a marvelous experience. Um, so this not thinking, directing the thinking uh, to stay awake and to stay focused, we do have concentration practices. And that's when things are very expansive. You want to pull in a little bit and just kind of settle yourself. And that's really what the purpose is. Not to cut off, not to razor sharp like discard. And as we go along, our attention shifts in our silence and prepares us to go to a deeper place, this place where language cannot transmit this, speculation cannot reach it. Our senses, as I was talking about the hearing, comes more alive. Our heart, our mind, we feel more refreshed and whole. And in the sound, I think, here's a a really good example. It's like you're sitting there and the attendant says something and you go, what what did the attendant say? And what could they have said? They called some line, but you hear it as, the elephants charged through the room and the... the," And, you know, you're you're so open then so receptive that you're not connecting the meaning to the language, which I find that kind of a fascinating thing. Or you hear a sound outside and you don't know if it was thunder or a motorcycle. These blurry distinctions and blurry places are also kind of refreshing because it means that our discrimination is softening and loosening. And for some people, that is good if they're very, very tight. And for the looser people, maybe being more attentive is better. (laughs) Uh, In painting, there's this phenomenon called the figure ground, figure ground issue, whatever. And basically, what it's pointing to is that the whole is interdependent. The sound is coming to us, and we're going to the sound. And there's no clear demarcation. And in figure ground, when you're trying to paint an object, you're working on the volume and the shape of the color, you cannot make that object have aliveness without equally paying attention to the ground, what we call the ground, the rest of the rectangle around it. And that brings it alive. And that points to... 
the obvious. We're all in, so interdependent, so suggestive to this place. So sentient. When Miodel says, thoughts of today float by in dark air like mist drifting across the pure light of the moon. So in this space, words or silence, what, what is your mind right now? The space between the thoughts, is that, is that it? Is it the breath? Hogan Sensei said yesterday, there's no such thing as the breath. The edge that has no edge. And then another aspect of this is the resting mind in silence, that you could actually see your mind resting. I mean, I don't think I ever did that before doing sasan, and it took me a long time to recognize it. This is an excellent place, and it takes some recognition that we are resting, and we are human creatures that rest. So there's wakefulness, sleeping, activity, and restfulness. Very important. So bravely face the dark sky and look up the moon. We are the dark sky holding the brilliant moon. I wanted to talk a little bit more on, on silence um, in the Zen tradition. And because of time, I'm not going to go into a lot of uh, what I was going to talk about, but in this silence and listening closely, this is the companion to genuine expression. And Daida Roshi had, had quite a nice thing to say about this. Wordless is not the same as expressionless. All phenomena of the universe, audible and inaudible, tangible and intangible, sentient and insentient, are the clear and ceaseless expression of Buddha nature. I wanted to bring up another person in our tradition because I personally, when I first heard some of the koans and something magic seemed to happen in these exchanges, sometimes it was in silence and no words were said. And to me, it was like mystery. Like, what is going on here? You know, what is going on here? Okay, maybe it's pointing us to sit in Sazen and experience that mystery. But is it a big mystery? Is it something I can't know? It's going to be beyond me? No. Yes. Maybe. (laughs) So I picked another person to talk about who I kind of is my guy in a lot of these koans. And that's Ananda. Ananda is the Buddha's cousin. And he was, we know quite a lot about him, at least uh, what I could pick up. He was not only the Buddha's cousin, he was pulled in to the Buddha's 
circle and was his attendant for 20 years. And he was a, a remarkable person, really. Um, he had total recall. And one of the reasons he was by the Buddha's side is because he could remember everything the Buddha ever said. And when they later went to memorize the teachings of the Buddha as the first group of disciples, Ananda was the person who, he was the total recall person who recited it. But he almost didn't make it into the council because he hadn't enlightened, gotten enlightened yet. He was like left behind. He wasn't really with that group. But he was by the Buddha's side for 20 years. He sat there. He listened to everything. He could recite it. He probably could maybe intellectually tell you what, it, what happened, maybe what happened, maybe not. He witnessed all these encounters with the Buddha had with other disciples, with other people coming to him, some who were enlightened and got the mystery, and some just there was, you know, conversations about how to live and, you know, write all the precepts and all that was in there too. Um, so I, another aspect of Ananda is that we know um, he was not really a renunciate, unlike a lot of the other disciples. So as a lay person, I identify with him. He struggled with wanting to have uh, relationships. Um, he was the guy when the Bodhisattvas went to Vimlakirti's little house and sat, you know, to hear because uh, Vimlakirti was ill. Hogan since I talked about the sutra yesterday. Ananda's going around looking for the chair. Like, he wants to sit on the chair, and where are all these people going to sit? And he wants to make sure it's the best chair. And Vimalakarti challenges him, are you here for the chair, or are you here to hear the sutra? So he, comfort, you know, non-renunciate. He's my kind of guy. And he didn't get it. He didn't get it. Definitely my kind of guy. So, um, <clears throat> so there is a story, it's a koan, where Ananda uh, is present, and someone outside asks Buddha, someone outside our Buddha way, sung, I ask the world-honored one, I'm not asking about presence or what can be said. I'm not asking about absence or what can't be said. The world honor one just sat there, still. World honor one, the outsider said, in praise and in admiration. Vast in compassion, vast in sympathy, you've opened the clouds of my delusion, showing me how to enter inside Buddha way itself. Then he bowed and reverently left. Deep with inquiry, Ananda asked Buddha, what did the outsider experience? What did he realize that made him grow so reverent in praise and admiration and then leave? So this is sort of a perfect, here it is. The Buddha is sitting in silence. What kind of silence? Does anyone here know? But he's sitting in silence like we do in session. Is it different or the same? I wonder. 
And Ananda sees this encounter. He sees something's happening, but what? Does he know what he sees? Like me, he, he sees someone else is understanding something. Someone else is getting something with the person that I admire. And what does that feel like? Now, we shouldn't take this question lightly because it's in our hearts a lot of times. But we should also enter into the outsider experience. And why are they outside? And why aren't they inside? We shouldn't take this silence as nothingness or as anything. So another thing that Ananda did that I'm eternally grateful for, at least in the history that was written the way we've heard it, is that he spoke up to the Buddha several times on behalf of his Dharma sisters to enter the Sangha. He had great heart. I thank you from my heart, Ananda. And the fact is, we can speak up. We have so much privilege to do that in this country. It's really incredible how fortunate we are that we are creatures that can use language to express ourselves. But at the same time, silence is a condition for genuine expression, and we should appreciate that also. The Buddha, at the end of his life, when he was asked what would his teaching be, and this is after 40 years of teaching out loud, saying things, keeping silent, instructing, being didactic, metaphoric, he urged people to rely on themselves. Let the Dharma and the discipline that I have taught you be your teacher. All individual things pass away. When someone attentively, earnestly, clearly comprehending and mindfully contemplates the body in the body, contemplates feelings in feelings, the mind in the the mind, he is an island to himself, a refuge to himself, seeking no external refuge, having the Dharma as his island, the Dharma as his refuge, seeking no other refuge. The Buddha urges us to go bravely into our silence of zazen and to see for ourselves that it's all one practice. Like all our examples, Vahangji's words expressing wonderfully how to practice, like Miyadao's brave journey of giving up the traditional way of women at the time and seeking the Dharma, like Ananda's devotion and bewilderment. Let us all enter where we find ourselves and let that be seen by the light of the moon in the dark night sky.
Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.